weeks. Do me a favor, take your Bibles and uh, open them to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And um, we're going to get after some things this morning. It's interesting, my father-in-law, his name was Robert Van Campen, and uh, he was a very successful um, businessman. He, he wasn't really an investor. He built companies. Um, he was a leader, a man who loved God's word. And um, if he was asked to speak on leadership or giving some reasons for his success, he would often talk about what he called the five D's of leadership or the five D's of decision making. This isn't in your notes. This is free. But uh, I've heard this talk many, many times. And he would say there's five D's that every leader has to get very, very good at. The first is you have to be able to deliberate. You can't shortcut the analysis. You've got to be able to get good counsel, look at a, a, a problem or a direction that you're going from from different angles. You've got to be able to deliberate to do the hard work of being a, a good analyst. The second thing you have to do is decide. Do you, do you all know that some people just have trouble making decisions? Are you aware of that? It's interesting. Calvin, when he was... Three, four, five, 20 years old, no, when he was little, when he was a little guy, um, we would take him out for ice cream. And one of the things that we learned with Calvin is you didn't go, hey, do you want chocolate or vanilla? Because he would go, vanilla, no, chocolate, no. Then he'd start to cry and he'd just fall apart. So couldn't make a decision. But there's things as a leader, not everything's as easily solved as a twist cone, you know what I mean? And uh, you've got to decide. And deciding means that you've got to choose one avenue, which means you can't go in another direction. After deciding, you have to be able to delegate. And that means as a leader, you can't do all the work. You've got to be willing to let go of things, let others do things, take a task, systematize it so that many can be involved. And then the fourth, demand performance. To be able to look at what's being done and to take corrective action if necessary. And then the final thing is you can't get so proud that you're not able to make a second decision. Sometimes a leader makes that first decision and then he doesn't have the ability to assess how things are going. But those were the five D's. It was deliberate, decide, delegate, demand performance, and know that you always have a second decision. My father-in-law died in 1999, over 20 years ago. And and, and I got to tell you, I wonder that if he were trying to build companies today, I wonder if he'd be successful A lot's changed in 20 years. Uh, Of the five D's of leadership or decision-making, the difficult one is number four, demanding performance. Hey, we're going this way. We need to go this way. We've gotten off course. Hey, you said that you were going to do some things, and those things aren't getting done. Demanding performance in our culture has become very difficult. Last week, if you were here, Cal spoke, and the title of his message was Five Reasons I Will Never Stop Tithing. And he gave, in his third point, he said, one of the reasons why tithing is important is because it cures me from my disease of selfishness. And and I won't go through it in detail. We spent some time in a worldview series this fall, but he said, in a postmodern culture, and when I say postmodern, what I mean is everyone has their own truth. There is no absolute truth. Everybody kind of defines their own reality that gets to choose their own truth. In a postmodern culture where there is no authoritative truth, life very quickly slides into meaninglessness. 
And then we talked about secular humanism and the fact of if there's no absolute truth and everyone gets to decide what's true for themselves, then it becomes very easy to go, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and in doing whatever you want to do and being whoever you want to be and believing that you need to be affirmed in every choice that you make, that selfishness very quickly leads into a cultural mindset. No one gets to tell me what to do. You see this everywhere you look in our culture. Here, here's what I want you to see this morning. This isn't, can't be dismissed as just a cultural thing or a millennial movement. It's way bigger than that. If you go back through out the Bible, you're gonna decide that it's not a cultural movement. It's a, um, it's a matter of the heart. All the way back in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are approached by Satan and, and, and are encouraged to sin, what does Satan do? Well, he begins his charge. He goes, did God really say what he said? Is God really for your good or is he trying to keep you from becoming like him? Will God really judge? Does God really have the right to tell you what to do? Next chapter in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have sinned. They have now left the garden. They have two uh, children, um, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring an offering before the Lord. Abel's is accepted. Cain is not. His offering is not accepted. And God comes to Cain, pleads with Cain. He says, why is it that you are angry and that your countenance has fallen? You're angry and you're depressed. Don't you know... If you do the right thing, your countenance will be lifted. You will be accepted. But if you don't, sin is waiting. It's crouching at the door. It's waiting to devour you. And it says Cain took that, went out, killed his brother. Nobody tells me what to do. In Genesis 6, we read that the heart of man was continually, it's continually, every intention of the thoughts of his heart were on evil continually. Nobody tells him what to do. And what we see is garden. No one tells man what to do. He does what he wants. Judgment. Cain and Abel, judgment to Cain. Noah's ark. God rescues, then he judges this attitude that we can do whatever we want, that no one tells us what to do. In the book of Judges, when the people are in the land of Canaan, we see this twice. Whenever you see the same thing in two different verses, pay attention. But we read the exact same words in Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then in the New Testament... Paul is instructing his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, and he says, hey, this is what it's going to be like in the last days. Men are going to be lovers of self. They're going to be disobedient to parents. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In essence, no one's going to be able to tell them what to do. This isn't a cultural problem. We see this over and over throughout the history of man. It is a heart issue. And in the book of Malachi, God's after our hearts. God's after our hearts. What we see in Malachi is seven times in four short chapters, the prophet brings a rebuke. We're going to be looking at the seventh one this morning. And after we finish this seventh one, I don't want you to miss the importance of where this is in Scripture. The seventh rebuke comes, a passage we'll be looking at this morning, and then there's going to be 400 years of silence. No prophets, God doesn't speak. What he has to say in these verses is important. Something else I want you to see 
we have a heart issue would be the first thing. Here's the second thing. It isn't only with those that are following that won't listen to authority. It's also with the authority. As I talk to business leaders, as I talk to other pastors, as I talk to school teachers, as I talk to law enforcement, you can talk to anyone in any of those capacities where they have a position of authority, and do you know what you're seeing? Frustration, discouragement, people leaving their jobs. It's not worth it. Who needs it? If no one's listening, I'm tired of being an authority. In the Old Testament, the problem wasn't just that the people weren't listening to the rebuke, but the people that God gave as prophets and priests, they weren't communicating truth anymore. Again, in Jeremiah 6, 13, and 15, and in Jeremiah 8, 10 through 12, we read the exact same words. Take a look. It says this. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone was greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wounds of my people, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And then from the prophet Ezekiel, we get these words in Ezekiel 13.10. It says this, precisely because they've misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, the prophets smear it with whitewash. In essence, what Ezekiel's saying is, he's saying they just gloss over the real issues. They won't speak into the heart issues and God is after our hearts. So the people won't listen. They won't take a rebuke and the leaders well, they're not willing to suffer the cost that sometimes leadership demands. We see this everywhere in our culture. Thinking of the child dedications, parents valuing relationship over their children rather than the responsibility to bring them up and train them in the instruction of the Lord. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes your kids aren't going to like it. A boss speaking into areas that they see in an employee's life, not just to encourage them, but to say, hey, here's some areas that I think you need to improve. Man, those words aren't accepted today, so they're just not being said. And quite honestly, even as a pastor, we know people are coming week after week, attending our services, but we also know that sometimes we have to have hard words with someone, say, hey, you're making choices that aren't godly. That relationship that you're pursuing, that's not healthy. You need to change course. And often that correction, that rebuke is met with, who gives you the right to say such a thing? I'll just go find another church. And we've got people attending this morning here in at Grand Haven who were at other churches and their leaders spoke a rebuke or reproof into their lives. So they said, ah, we'll just go to harvest. <laughs> Happens all the time. People just find a church to their liking. They don't want to receive the rebuke. So, so, so what do we do when we find ourselves as the followers of Jesus Christ, the church, in a culture and in a context where we know our heart is going astray, people aren't listening and leaders aren't leading? Well, we open up God's word and see what it instructs. In 2 Peter 4, in response to the encouragement that Paul had just given Timothy that in these last days men will love pleasure rather than God. They're going to do whatever they want to do. We read in 2 Timothy 4. He charges Timothy in the presence of God and of our Savior, uh, Lord and Jesus Christ. He says, listen, preach the word in season, out of season. 
He says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Listen. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I'm worried about itching ears. I'm worried about that feeling that pastors have that say, I don't want to say the hard things because the price is just too difficult to pay. And I'm feeling the weight in a series, seven weeks in the prophets. Man, that's heavy. I know this has been a heavy series. I'd rather be teaching for seven weeks on a prophet than be one of the prophets. They were doing it for years and lifetimes. But this morning, what we're going to be looking at is a response to rebuke. The big idea is simply this, a rebuke reveals what your heart treasures. So I'm going to pick it up in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Um, If you're looking at your notes, you already know we're in trouble. I've got 16 points. I'm so glad Cal is out of town because he'd be making fun of me for the amount of points. We're actually going to go through them very, very quickly. You will be out of here eh, at least on time, if not early. See, see, when you hit a topic like this, here's what's important to me as a preacher. I don't want to tell you what I think. I want to open up God's word and let you see directly from the text what it says. One of my mentors, a guy who was influential with me in preaching, he goes, David, the Bible's like a lion. All you got to do is open the cage. It'll fend for itself. So hopefully this morning, you're going to see these points directly in the text. You're going to see a failed response to rebuke, a proper response, and then how God responds when we're willing to humble ourselves and repent. Here's the first thing, verse 13. Let's read it. I'm just going to go 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit in our keeping his charger of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Six things from the text. Here's the first thing that I see in this failed response of the people. They spoke. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? The first thing they did, this is God rebuking them and immediately... They open their mouths and speak. Grumbling, complaining. You're going to see as we go through these verses, we know exactly what they said. It wasn't great. They weren't responding well to the rebuke. I think sometimes we need to be encouraged that when God is speaking to us or he's using the authorities that he's placed in our lives to speak to us, maybe less talking, more listening, less complaining, more faith. Maybe God's using the authorities that he's placed in his life to communicate some things he wants you to hear. Note that the text starts in verse 13. It says this, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. The Lord wasn't speaking directly to the people. He was speaking through the prophet Malachi. The people understood that Malachi has an authority, was speaking on behalf of the Lord. But rather than listen to what he was saying, they immediately spoke. Here's the second thing. They denied God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? It's interesting. Seven rebukes in the book of Malachi, same response to all seven. The first rebuke, rebuke, the people responded, how have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 2. 
Then they said, how have we despised you? Chapter 1, verse 6. How have we polluted you? Chapter 1, verse 7. How have we wearied him? Chapter 2, verse 17. How shall we return? Chapter 3, verse 7. How have we robbed you? Last week, chapter 3, verse 8. And now how have we spoken against you? See, see, immediately they go into denial mode. Like God doesn't have the facts to back up his rebuke. Maybe they thought if they caused the prophet Malachi to go to specifics that they could disarm his argument, but they couldn't disarm the argument of the Lord. When he rebukes, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe they didn't even think before they just went into all defense mode. Maybe they were just so primed to complain and to deny that this was just the pattern they developed when God rebukes. How many times must God rebuke until we realize the problem might be with us? Parents, if you've raised kids, I can remember with our kids, we, um, one of the jobs that our kids had to do, my boys, Calvin and Christopher, had to do was they had to bring up firewood so that we had fire for the fireplace. My wife starts a fire on November 1st and it burns constantly till April 30th. Just what she did. She loves her fires, okay? So, so this was a never-ending task with our boys. So now you need to understand, we weren't asking them to go in the woods, pick a tree, cut it down, chop it up, and bring it in. It was already piled. There was a cord that was piled in our garage. They just had to get it from the garage downstairs up to the fireplace on the second floor. So there was some labor involved. No, I'm not denying that. They would take a garbage can, they would put it on a two-wheel dolly, and they would pull it up the two stairs from the garage and then they'd have to get it up to the second floor so they'd put it in the elevator (laughs) pretty tough I know but when you ask them hey we're out of wood can you get more wood sometimes you'd get attitude be like what's up with the attitude it's like I'm not giving you attitude Well, well what's the rolling of the eyes what's the crossing of the arms what's the deep long exhale like (laughs) you're you're giving me attitude, man. Like, like you're, you can deny it, but there's attitude. I sense that in this text. Here's a third thing. They blamed. Look what they say. They say, but you say, how have we spoken against you? God says, you have said it is vain to serve God. See, the problem isn't, it's not on us, God. It's on you. We would do what you were asking us to do if you would do the things that you said you were going to do. And immediately what they're doing is they're blame shifting. They're saying the problem is not with us. This rebuke is not for us. We will not accept it from you because you're not doing what we expected of you. The problem is with God. It's with his authority. Warning to leaders, a bell should go off. If you're interviewing an employee at work, if you're talking to a a, a student or someone you're bringing in and and they say, well, you know, at my last job, I had a terrible boss and then I had a terrible coach and I had a, well, hey, the bell should go off. Shifting blame, unwillingness to take a rebuke. Here's a fourth thing I see in the text. This is an important one. Look what they say. They say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Here's what they're doing. They're reconstructing what the Lord is saying. Listen, is is that our God, a God who wants you walking around mourning all the time? Is that the heart of our heavenly father? No, our father is for our joy. Psalm 1611 says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. But, but they've reconstructed, they've impugned his motive. They say the reason that he keeps calling us to repent is he just wants us to feel bad all the time and walk around in mourning. It's not true. 
God has placed the authorities in your life. And sometimes those authorities are going to rebuke. And we are so quick to impugn the motive or to attack. We live in a culture where not only do we not accept a rebuke from our authorities, but we live feeling very, very comfortable to critique upstream. Complaining about our politicians, about our leaders, about our bosses, about our coaches, all of it. Reconstructing, impugning motives. And I know some of you are setting your jaw already. You're like, man, you don't know my authority. You don't know my parents. You don't know my boss. You don't know my pastor. And you're right. Sometimes I don't know all of your authorities. And I know that you can be placed under difficult, unreasonable authorities. But here's what I know. I know whose authority your authority is. And I think quite often, God is way more in control than we realize. A couple of reminders. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says that every authority that, God is, that, that is in your life, that is placed, is placed there by God. 2 Peter 2, 13, I'll read this one. It says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should, put up, uh, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, what's God's will for you? That you submit the authorities that he's placed in your life. It's that clear. And some of you are like, I'm getting really, really uncomfortable with this. I'm just giving you God's word. But what if the authority isn't fair? What if it's awful? Let me, consider, let me have you consider the next verse. Look what it says in John. This is Jesus standing before his crucifixion. It says, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Let me give you context. Jesus has been unlawfully arrested. He has gone through illegal trials. He has been beaten. He has been betrayed. And now he stands before Pilate. Was Pilate an awesome authority? No, he was a people pleaser, trying to figure out the will of the people rather than what was right. And he stands before him, and Jesus, through all of that, looks at him and says, you know what? The only reason that you're in the position of authority right now is because the Lord gave it. That's true of good leaders and bad leaders. This will be echoed by Paul in 1 Peter 2, when speaking of Christ, who we're to look for when we have to suffer under unfair Leadership. That's what 1 Peter 2 is about. He says of Jesus Christ, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to a creator who is faithful. Yeah, but we can't always follow our authorities. There's got to be some circumstances where we can rebel as followers of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there are. Let me give you the exception clauses because our minds tend to want to run here. There's two. Biblical submission to authority is not blind obedience. You can choose to rebel against the authorities God's placed in your life when they ask you directly to sin and when they don't allow you to be a witness for the gospel. Those are the two exceptions. And just understand, if you come to the point where you're going to exercise one of those two exceptions you, and you find yourself in that situation, you have to willingly and joyfully accept the consequences of going against your authority to follow the greater authority, which is God in not choosing to sin against him, break his commandments, or not being able to be a witness. They reconstruct. Here's number five. 
They don't see their sin. Verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Here's what's going on in this verse. I don't want you to miss it. God is rebuking the people. They immediately blame God and they say, God, you're not doing what you're supposed to. The evildoers are getting away with it. And here's what I don't want you to miss. In that moment, they're not the ones that need the rebuke. It's those other people. There's wicked people over there. We're the good people. They don't even see their sin. When we're not willing to accept a rebuke from the Lord, man, it's dangerous for our hearts. One other thing I just want you to see throughout this text. It says, listen, they're looking around. They say the arrogant are blessed. Evildoers not only prosper. And they put God to the test and they escape. In essence, what they're saying is they're getting away with it. And when we're unwilling to accept a rebuke and we just are focused on our circumstances, here's the thing that I want you to see. In those moments, our perspective becomes really short. We're looking at our current circumstances, our current situation, and we're saying it's not fair. And because of the momentary injustice or unfairness, all of a sudden we begin to doubt that we serve a holy, just God. So a failed response. They speak, they deny, they blame, they reconstruct, they don't see their sin, and they have a very short perspective. Let's look at a different response to correction or rebuke, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, God speaks and says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Here's what I see from the text as a proper response to rebuke. Here's number one, they feared the Lord. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack this. I did this two weeks ago when I was teaching, but, but here's what it means to fear the Lord. If you do the deep dive in Hebrew, fear means to be afraid. Pretty complicated, I know. To, to believe that when God says something, that's weightier than what we feel like doing in the moment or what we might even think is right. Fearing the Lord is giving him his proper place. That we are in submission to him, and it's never the other way around. So while some people denied and they blamed God and they made excuses and they reconstructed, there was another group who heard the same rebuke, and, and their response was they feared the Lord. The second thing I see, they also spoke. They, they said, hey, the direction that we've been going is not right. We've just received a word from the Lord through his prophet, and we've got to respond. We've got to change. They were encouraging one another to righteousness. That's our role with one another as a church, isn't it? That's why we come together. That's why we're in small group. To say, hey, listen, if God's calling us to do something, he's not looking for us to live in mourning. He's not a taker. He's a giver. He's calling us to something better for his glory and for our joy. They feared, they spoke. Here's the third thing, they esteemed his name. It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. His name is the name that's lifted high. His name is the name that is above all other names. Secular humanism is a dead end. Living a selfish life is living a sad and miserable life. Living for 
a creator God when we esteem his name, when we put him on the throne of our lives, when we esteem him above all other things. That's the choice that Malachi is calling his people back to. The remembering that they give an account to God. He does not give an account to us. And then here's another thing I see in 18, a fourth thing. It says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Okay, see a word that shows up there a couple times? Serve. Their, their choice to respond to the rebuke didn't just mean that they had a mental shift in their focus or in their attitude. It affected the way they lived. They began to serve. And please hear me. When I say serve here, I'm not talking about cafe ministry, parking lot ministry, small group leaders, children's workers. Though if you wanted to do any of those, that would be highly appreciated and awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'm talking about living a lifestyle where you're serving a king. What he calls you to takes priority. It takes preference. A proper response. They feared, they spoke, they esteemed his name, and they served. And, and, and I give you all of this because I want you to see the next thing. How does God respond when we respond properly to his instruction? You got to understand, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are wicked beyond even what we can know. Desperately wicked is what the text says. And, and sometimes to get a hold of our heart because God is after our heart, the theme of the book of Malachi, there's going to be corrective words. How you respond shows what you treasure. It makes all the difference. Look at what the text says, how God responds. Here's the first thing. It says this, the Lord paid attention and heard them. That's verse 16. Two weeks ago, I read this verse from 2 Chronicles 16. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and throw throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Maybe the most remarkable thing in the text is that there is a creator God that, first of all, cares enough about us that he's going to rebuke us, call us to correction, to discipline us. And then when we do, he notices. He pays attention. He cares. He was sending his prophet not so that people could hear him speak, but for the good of the people that pays attention. Secondly, in the text, it says this, he remembered, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He says, those are the names I'm writing down. Those are the people that I will not forget. That pays attention. He remembers. Here's the third thing, verse 17 they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. He pays attention. He remembered. We become his treasured possession. To me, that's incredible. When we started the church, I don't remember if it was right at the beginning or if it was a couple of years into the church, um, a gentleman began to attend our church with his wife. His kids would also come. They've been involved. They've been in the life of our church for, man, seems like from the beginning, but at least 10 years. And, and, and when I met this couple, it was interesting. Every week they would come up and just encourage me. Hey, great job. Hey, love you. Hey, praying for you. Hey, appreciate you. And, and the guy was just cool. He, he was the guy that everybody wanted to be their grandfather. He was a very accomplished outdoorsman, fisherman, 
hunter. If you went to his house, there were elk and deer and caribou on the walls of their living room. His wife, Dee, was a saint. And um, I think it amused my friend Les when I took up hunting. I didn't start to hunt until I was a pastor. I, really, I didn't feel the need to kill things until I became a pastor. Um, <laughs> and uh, I loved Les and Dee. And two weeks ago, we got a call from Dee. said, hey, listen, can Les and I just swing over by your house? And they just wanted to visit for a little bit. And um, Les brought me this. And uh, Les' health has been failing, but he said, hey, I want to give you something. I made you a knife. And, and the knife is made out of the handles out of deer antlers. It, it's pretty incredible. It came with a, uh, a stand. And um, he's like, you're going to have to sharpen that before you use it. Les died Thursday. I don't think this is ever coming out of its stand. I doubt that this knife is going to ever see the inside of a deer. And as this sits in my office on display, you need to understand something. When I look at this knife, I don't see a knife. I see lesson detoth. This is a treasured possession of mine. And that's a picture of the gospel. What God is saying here is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand something. When God sees us, he doesn't see all of our mistakes, our failures, the places where we fall short. The New Testament makes it very clear that when we trust and accept Jesus as our Savior, he forgives us as our sin. His righteousness is imputed to us is what the New Testament teaches. And that when God looks at us, we become a treasured possession. He doesn't see our failures. He sees He's the one who made us, created us, redeemed us, and now possesses us. We are a treasured possession because Jesus spared no expense to save us. And God says, when you're willing to listen to my rebuke, I'm going to remember. I'm going to pay attention. You will be a treasured possession. And then look where the text leads. He says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He says, I'm going to spare them. They won't experience some of the things that the others do. That's what sparing means. Well, what were the others experience? Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The text will go on. It says in verse 5, speak specifically of that day mentioned in Malachi 4.1. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the day he's referring to. The day of the Lord is when God brings his wrath on unbelievers. It's not here yet. It's still coming. This is a period of time that is referred to as the last days. From the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection till his ultimate return to rule and judge. Those are the last days. We live in those days. And I think we're in the last days of the last days, if I'm being quite honest. But there's a day that God will come back and he will establish his kingdom and he will judge. In that day, he will spare his treasured possession. They will not go through the wrath of God. He says, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's interesting. 
The Old Testament ends 400 years of silence. And then before Jesus comes, there's this man, John the Baptist. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus says things like, if you can understand it, he is Elijah the prophet. And in Revelation, before the day of the Lord, we read about two witnesses. Most believe that that's Moses, Elijah, the law and the prophets, giving testimony before the day of wrath. God always warning his people, always sending his prophets. Second Peter 3 says he wishes that none would perish. That's why he delays year after year, decade after decade, and millennium after millennium before he brings final judgment, wanting all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But a day is coming when he will judge. This is serious stuff. And if God has placed an authority in your life or is rebuking you through his word, we'd best pay attention. And then a final thing, look at Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I want you to see what I just did. I ended with Malachi 2. I didn't end with Malachi 6. The Old Testament, the, the Jewish scribes and the, uh, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day, they didn't like the way the Old Testament ended. It's not fun to end a book with the words utter destruction. They liked happily ever after way better. So we can find versions of the Old Testament where they flipped the order of these verses because they didn't want to end with a warning. They wanted to end with hope. And what happens is Malachi 4.2 in some old translations was rewritten to the end of the Old Testament so that we would have this encouragement. For, for, for those of you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like cast from the stall. Now notice that word son is not S-O-N, it's S-U-N. It's talking about dawn, the sun rising, a new day. But please don't miss this. After 400 years of silence, Jesus will show up on the scene and in Matthew 4, he will preach his first message in his hometown of Nazareth and he will stand up and he will quote from Isaiah 9, verse 2. In his message, he will say, those people who lived in a great darkness have now seen a great light. Don't miss the connection. Jesus is the hope that Malachi is referencing. And then it says Jesus will go out from that sermon and guess what he preaches? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Rebuke, correction, you got to change. See, as God's people, we got to get our, our hearts very, very soft to the idea that God's going to correct us and call us to repentance. Don't ever desire a gospel that doesn't cause you to sometimes look in the mirror, evaluate yourself, and say, thank you, Jesus, for pointing these things out. I need to change. I need to repent. So how do we close a series like, like this in the Old Testament Prophets? My, my, my fear would be that as we go through the summer and through the fall, if you reflect back on our last seven weeks, all you're going to remember is the theme music. That would be tragic. <laughs> Just a couple things as we close. In Haggai, we looked that our priority should be the pursuit of God's presence. That that should be the thing that we desire. That that should be the thing that we long for. And then in Malachi, God's after our hearts. He's not after just our obedience. He's not after our wallets. He's not after our sacrifices. He's after our hearts. And to get our hearts, sometimes there's going to be hard words. And sometimes he uses the authorities in your life to deliver those words. How are we going to respond? 
Are we going to be like our culture who just won't listen? Leaders, are you just going to quit saying the hard things because it's not worth it? Or are we going to do what God's word says? Be faithful to the things that he's called us to. The choice is ours. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would give us the courage to do the things that you've called us to do. Father, we thank you for your word, even the rebuke of the prophets. And Father, I look forward to next week in the Psalms. Change of pace, some encouragement for a weary heart. But Father, I don't want to miss this moment either. Father, we live in dangerous days. Father, we would pray that you would remain our hope, our source of strength, that we would believe your word and we would act on it no matter how we feel because you are a God who keeps his promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.